This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning. Uh, I'm Dave Byers, and I have the privilege of reading God's Word to you this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to... The Gospel of Matthew, the 7th chapter, we'll be reading the first six verses. If uh, you don't have your Bible with you, you can use the Pew Bible. I think you'll find this passage on page 812. Matthew chapter 7, first six verses. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured unto you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Well, thanks, everybody. Hey, good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you guys are with us. Hey, I want to make a quick announcement, and then we'll uh, pray, and we'll jump into this text. If you were here last week or you've, or one of our members, you've heard us talking about uh, next week is a vote to potentially change our name from Leewood Baptist Church to Hope Community Church. So if you didn't get this, last week we passed out this form. It's just a little bit of vision as well as some questions that we think are kind of common questions. We'd love to answer those for you. But I just want to take a couple of minutes uh, to orient us. And I realize there's people in the room who aren't members, which means you won't officially vote on this decision, but um, it'll impact you because in a couple of weeks you'll come to maybe a different church and you'll go, hey, what's going on here? And so I want to just kind of give a little bit of vision behind some of the why, what we're hoping changing the name does for us and what we know it can't do for us. And then I'll pray for us and we'll We'll dive in. So, so if you've been around a while, you've heard us say, uh, probably for more than a decade, our church has wrestled with, does our name best communicate what's most important to us? Is it the best way to represent ourselves to our community? Um, we've had this desire to honor our past and to be thankful for where we are in the city. And so in no way do we want to step away from being for the heart of Leewood. And in no way are we trying to distance ourselves from our denomination as Southern Baptist. But, but those two words, Leewood and Baptist, often have different connotations in people's minds. And so the church has wrestled really for a decade with, are those the best words to describe who we are and what we love? And they actually made a run uh, maybe 10 years ago or so to actually change the name. And I think there was a season where there was still some work to do internally uh, that the church needed to do because the name change can't make you healthy. There was a time in uh, like the 80s and 90s where church marketing got a hold of the church and there was a desire and kind of a sales pitch that if you would just change your name to something like the ooze or the impact or something like that, then all these people would come because you were now all of a sudden relevant. So that might have been in the water a little bit, but I think our church was wise enough to say, hey, calling ourselves Impact Church doesn't mean that we would have an impact. And I think there is an Impact Church in Kansas City, and I'm sure it's awesome and amazing. There's no disparity to that church at all. But, but you can understand how just simply saying this doesn't mean that you actually are, are doing it. It's like a parent who goes away to like a parenting conference 
and comes back to their kids and gives this huge speech how everything's going to change and then nothing changes. And just like talking about it or saying it doesn't actually bring it, bring it about. So I think the church had some wisdom there to say, hey, we're not actually ready yet to kind of change at the outward what, what we're saying about who we are because God needs to do some work inside of us. And, and I think in God's grace, though it's through been a lot of suffering and a lot of um, turmoil and a lot of clarification as a body and a lot of desires and lots of prayers and lots of work and lots of faith and lots of trust and lots of conversations, this body now feels like it's time for us to move forward and say, hey, how do we actually use a name that would capture where we are and what we want to be about as a church? Because as important as it is for us to be in a local community, we desire to reach more than just Leewood. And as important as our denominational background is for us, and we're really thankful for our family heritage, it's not the most important thing about us. Actually, our allegiance to Jesus is the most important thing. And so the churches began to have this conversation. I actually heard the conversation when I started here uh, now almost a year ago. Everybody I interacted with, every meeting I was in, every one-on-one conversation, this idea of the name change kind of kept popping up. And so we just prayed into it, and we decided, hey, let's go and move forward. Maybe God has done the deep work inside of our hearts now that we could actually say, hey, we want to be about what the church has always been about historically for 2,000 years and also since our inception as a local church to be about the hope of Jesus. And we want to be known in our community as a place that proclaims the hope of Jesus and that when you need something and you know things aren't right and you're acting in a space where like there's something missing, that you would hear in this place that God loves you, that he sees you, and there's actually hope not just for this moment but for you to actually be changed. For you to actually get unstuck, one of our pastors said. He said, the hope, hope of transformation means you don't have to stay stuck, one of our pastors said. And so we want to just proclaim that good news that Jesus came to get us unstuck. And, and that might be maybe too shallow, right? We've got to talk a lot more about being reconciled to God and an eternal hope. Actually, the scriptures would say that, that hope lasts for forever. And so we're not just saying, what do we need today? But what will we be proclaiming and celebrating for eternity, and we feel like hope really does begin to capture that. And wanted a name that was simple enough that when you told your friends and neighbors where you went to church, it was just a couple of sentences before you were able to talk about Jesus. And actually, I've heard a couple of stories already this week of people kind of with folks out in the wild talking about what's happening here, and they're trying to explain the name change. And within just a couple of paragraphs, we're able to talk about the hope that Jesus provides for us. And so more than just kind of doing something we've been talking about for a long time and finally getting across the line, our hope is that this becomes a rally cry for us, that we actually kind of sink our teeth into the idea that Jesus actually came to give us hope, and to provide that not just for us inside this room, but for our entire community. And then we would actually begin to just say that and preach that and promise that and engage with that and live that out in the world around us. And we could ask ourselves on a regular basis, hey, are we doing the most important thing? Are we proclaiming the hope of Jesus as a church? Or has something else gotten in the way or something else become a distraction? And so then our name can become kind of a clarifying thing for us. It can become a rally point for us. It can be a way to actually engage in mission in our community as you talk about who we are and what's most important to us, even starting just with that starting of our name. But, but it won't actually automatically make those things happen. And it won't actually automatically make us healthy. And so we, we acknowledge that. And actually, as we've been walking with our members for quite a while, and we've gone back and forth with, should we change the name? Is, is it worth what that means? We just have said out loud, changing the name doesn't change us. But what's interesting in God's providence is it feels like God has already changed us, and now we get a chance to actually live into what he's doing as a community. And I want to be really careful. Our legacy 
is one that we are proud of and thankful for. And so it's not as if we're going to start doing something totally different. We're stepping away from our past. We're actually stepping towards where we're heading as a people in light of where we've been, asking God to take us forward. And you don't have to diminish one thing to say, hey, actually, we want to move this direction and go forward. And so with all of my heart, I'm so thankful for where we've been. And I think this will be a good move for us as a church to better represent what matters to us and who we are and be this rallying cry to help us begin to move forward. Okay, so there's a lot of questions about that. We're a congregational church, so our members will gather next week to vote on that. So members will stick around after the service um, in this room. We'll pass out ballots. We'll discuss for a little bit, and, and then we'll vote. Those of you guys who are not members, I still really care about your thoughts and your questions. And so that little document's meant to answer some of the main ones, but you might have some more. And so right after the service today, uh, should be done by the time the first quarter's over with the Chiefs game. Uh, we'll just meet over here for a little bit and answer whatever questions you have. So we'll take as long as you want, um, answer whatever questions you have, whatever's stirring in you, what this means, what it doesn't mean about our past and about our future. We'd love to take some time and walk with you in that space. So I'm excited for what God is doing and, and has done. We just had our first week of our membership class a moment ago, and just to talk about like the long history of faithfulness here, and think about people that have been part of our body for like over 60 years, who faithfully labored in this community for a long, long time, to see our mission being going forward is a really exciting thing for us as a community. So I want to invite you into that with me. If you got questions, we'll talk. Uh, members, we'll see you after the service next week. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into this text. Jesus, thank you for who you are. And thanks that you came to provide hope for us. With or without a name, you embody that, you preach that, and you accomplished it. You took our sin upon yourself and you bore the weight of all the things about us that were both rebellious and broken and dysfunctional that deserved your wrath. And then it's placed by faith you give us hope. You give us new life. You reconcile us to yourself. This is amazing news. And if we're not careful, Christian and non-Christian alike, we can just run past it to traditions or to things we always do or things we always take, take place with on a Sunday. But actually, this is something for us to sit in to say thank you for the hope that you provide. And thank you that the hope is a robust hope. It actually changes us. It, it transforms us. And so to trust you and love you and follow you and give our hearts to you really does change us from the inside out. So I ask in this moment right now, Holy Spirit, would you do that work in us? Would you increase our hope and clarify for us what you're like and what you've done? And, and would you change us? And I pray that for those who already know you, and I pray that for those who don't yet know you. God, would you save people this morning? Would they hear the good news of the gospel in such a way that, that you give them faith and they turn towards you and trust you for their sins in ways that they're actually redeemed and reconciled and healed and, and saved? So would you do miracles in the room? And we're carrying like doubts, we're carrying fatigue, we're carrying pain, we're carrying shame, we're carrying anger and anxiety. There's so many things that are with us as well in the room. So would you speak to those things by your Holy Spirit? Uh, help us in this space, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, hey, Matthew chapter 7. This is the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. We've got uh, one more chapter here in Jesus' teaching. It's the longest teaching that we have 
of Jesus. And we just keep saying this over and over again in case you're new. This is one long sermon. So if you've never read it, it'll only take you about 15 minutes or so. And that's actually reading pretty slow. If you start in Matthew chapter 5 and go all the way to the end of chapter 7, you hear Jesus describe what it means to live life in the kingdom. What did he come to do? Who's the kingdom for? What does it mean to actually follow him in the kingdom? And what's he trying to do on the earth? And how do we join him? What does it look like? What does it look like if someone's following King Jesus and engaging in the kingdom of God? What does that change about us? How does it press things down deeper in our hearts? What does it reorient about us? These are the things that we've been walking through. And so we come in chapter 7, and and a few months ago as I was outlining these sermons, when we hit this section, my heart was just Uh, maybe grieved, maybe excited, maybe hopeful, maybe felt responsible just to slow down a little bit because I feel like this is a really, really important passage. We said last week it's probably one of the most often quoted passages even outside of the church and among those who don't know Jesus. Even this idea of don't judge me or judge not lest you be judged. You've probably heard that on TV. You've heard it in movies. You've heard it in your neighborhood. Maybe someone has said it to you. Again, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to have heard this. And even this idea of having a a log in your eye and take out your log first before you deal with their speck, these are common phrases. And we said last week that though it's so common, it's often misapplied or underapplied. Because the whole point of the text is not to weaponize that and say, get away from me. It actually, we looked at last week, is to invite you in to see where you need to be aligned with the kingdom. So only judgmentalism Uh, Judgmentalism is only judgmental if it is not recognizing your own need for grace. To use a measure for for yourself that's different than for somebody else, that's what hypocrisy is. That's what judgmentalism is. But to say something is out of bounds and right or wrong is, is loving to do, especially if you'll start with your own heart and say, there are things about me that are out of bounds. There are things about my loves and my longings and my behavior. They're like logs in my eye. And so, so he goes from this section of this invitation to grace for you to receive it yourself so that you can actually love somebody else with, with their speck. And then in verse 6, he gives this warning. Don't give the dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. <laughs> Which I, I think is a really important verse. It gives some symmetry to that. It gives some boundaries and some protections to what Jesus has been saying. And I think, let me just say it this way. When I first read this text, I had a couple of burdens for us. Because I think this call not to be judgmental, uh, the fear of being canceled if you say the wrong thing, the isolation you feel in your relationships, already the fragmented relationships that you carry where someone has seen you as as a a bigot or somebody who's arrogant, maybe even archaic and old-fashioned because you might say, hey, Jesus actually speaks to this issue in your life whether it's money or race or sexuality, depending on what the issue is, you've probably heard this. And so I had this fear that, that you would be wrestling with the temptation just to be quiet and silent, lest you be seen as judgmental. I don't think it's actually very loving. And I think the idea of dealing with this speck that we'll review here in just a moment is a very loving thing to say to somebody, hey, this actually will hurt you. But, but there's such pressure around us. Nobody wants to be that guy or that girl. Again, to have your Twitter feed light up with all these kind of comments about you and your background and what you must believe, and they don't even know you. But that's like a real, that's a real deal. So I had this idea like, hey, maybe there's this space where you might be tempted to be, to be quiet. 
And then I had this concern on another angle that you might actually, in an effort to be humble and gracious and kind, you might keep yourself in situations that were abusive. Keep yourself in really unhealthy situations and, and have maybe the Bible quoted at you in a certain situation, maybe it's a marriage or a relationship, where you're being asked to stay in a really unhealthy, unsafe place. And so there's this counter to that. Not just don't be quiet, but, but don't be abused, which is what I think verse 6 is about. So I read this and I thought, man, I bet you those are temptations that you, that you might feel, depending on your personality and your background and what your relationships are. Just keep quiet and just stay where you are, regardless of what's, what's happening. And we'll call it faithfulness, we'll call it stability, we'll call it graciousness, but maybe it actually can borderline on abusive. And then I thought about like one more burden, and actually just came to me this morning. There's a loving thing to call a spade a spade, and to say, hey, that is not in keeping with someone who follows Jesus. That is actually really going to be unhealthy and destroy you. That's hurting the people around you. And we need as a community to love each other enough to speak the truth to each other where we would warn and caution what this text calls dogs and pigs. People that are refusing to have their hearts turned towards the things of God, who, who are devouring and biting and causing pain and division. And sometimes the church, in an attempt to be kind, has let really um, unhealthy, dysfunctional, abusive, dishonoring behavior stay in the community. So you could think about exhibit A of like a business meeting where there's a big conversation and you got people that are just off the rails saying things that you would never actually say in another setting, but because it's a business meeting, they feel really comfortable or, some, or something like that. And, and we do gossip and call it sharing or, or we're judgmental and self-righteous and call it convicted. We have some weird things that we do as a community. So a, a third fear I have is that we, we wouldn't actually hold the identity together of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We would allow brothers and sisters to drift in such a way that we would allow dogs and pigs just to roam the aisles of our church. And that personification is actually kind of helpful. You go like, that would be kind of a, a weird setting on a Sunday morning. If you could see that happening, you would actually want to stop it, right? So, so I don't want you to be silent. I don't want you to be abused. And, and I want us to grow as a church to engage what is broken around us with love, but speaking the truth in such a way that someone can actually be healed and redeemed. So let me just be really clear up front. I don't think Jesus is saying these are the kind of people who are always only out, and these are the kind of people that are always only in. You figure out who's who, you judge them, and then move on with your life. To say what someone is doing is very different than saying who they are in their being. And the scriptures are full of people who were dogs and pigs who Jesus got a hold of their life. History is full of people who were like, like John Newton, who's like a slave trader, who actually comes to faith in Jesus. There's nothing more dog and pig-like than devouring humans. And he moves from that space to being a pastor and a, a great theologian and a hymn writer. And you could look in our modern world of other examples of people who, who were on the outside, who hated God, and actually God got a hold of their heart and redeemed them. So this is not a judgment on somebody that you would cast them aside. It's an invitation to say, whoa, the way you're living and what you're doing is out of bounds so that you can be invited to receive grace. I'll say that again and again because that's what it means to be a redemptive community. Jesus came as the king to rescue all rebels and enemies, which is all of us. We looked at some passages 
last week. That's the whole point of this log and speck deal, right? It's made of the same kind of substance. And so, except for the grace of God, you would be in exactly the same spot. So we don't say to people, how dare somebody? Because we know how we would dare. We don't say to somebody, how could you? Because we know how, how we could. And so to name it for what it is, is actually an invitation to something beautiful and redemptive. But sometimes people are so dangerous that you have to leave them alone and let them hit the bottom. You can't actually help them. They're outside of what you can do. Only God himself can rescue and redeem. And he won't use nearby people. He will use just his spirit and the pain of isolation to actually rescue and redeem. But look at some passages that say that as well. Okay, so, so that is important for us to hold in mind because I want us to really focus on verse 6. And, and here's the deal. Like there's, based on personalities, you might actually be tempted to stay with a relationship too long. And it's really confusing. In one situation, it's faithful love. In another one, it's codependence. And it's hard to discern what's the difference sometimes, which is why community is so important to have people come and rally around you. And so I tend to err on the side of like doing CPR for too long. And so I've had people around me go, hey, man, you're doing CPR on a dead body. You got to stop. But the issue is I've seen resurrections. I've seen dead bodies come to life. And so I want to stay longer than sometimes is actually helpful. So I say that just to say I'm, I am sympathetic or familiar with or aware of the temptation to, to not follow this passage, to distance yourself from people that are dangerous because you're really hopeful. And the good news is we don't have to make a false choice here. We, we can do both. We can say, hey, you've crossed a line to where I need to entrust you over to Jesus because I love you. I'm not cutting you off, and I'm not sending you out. I'm not dismissing you in a way that you have no value, but I'm simply saying this behavior is destructive and dangerous, and I can't be a part of this with you anymore. That that's actually a really, really, really loving thing. And so I want us to grow as a people where our humility actually has some feet, and it looks like something. So, so here's two things I want to say. How do we be judgmental? I'm sorry, how do we judge without being judgmental? We don't want to be judgmental. How do we judge right and wrong without being judgmental? And how do we tell the truth without being torn apart? How do we judge without being judgmental? And how do we tell the truth without being torn apart? All right, this first part is verses 1 to 5. Let's look at it real quick just as a review. He says, judge not that you be judged. And we said, well, what does that actually mean? Well, he explains in verse 2, for the judgment that you pronounce will be judged on you, and the measure that you use, you will be measured by. So it's a double standard is what judgmentalism is. It's not calling a spade a spade. It's not saying this is out of bounds of the kingdom of God. It's actually using dishonest measures and having two different standards. And then he illustrates that. And he says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's this log in your own eye. And so the first thing we talked about last week is that there's an invitation for you to own your own brokenness. It keeps you from actually being judgmental when you see your need for grace. The anecdote to judgmentalism is grace. It's you seeing your own need for God to help and redeem. You recognize there are things in your eye. Logs and specks and eyes are things that are outside the bounds of the kingdom of God. Call it sin, call it dysfunction, call it whatever you want. It's things that are outside the heart of God for you and for those around you. And to engage in that feels like this log in your eye. And we said this is about perspective, that to you it should feel bigger than what's in someone else's eye. And we said it's made of the same substance, so it's all wood, right? Logs and specks are made of the same stuff. And so the first thing that we want to hold on to is a gracious understanding of our own need. 
Like we recognize our own sinfulness. We have a robust view of our own brokenness in ways that we're honest about what's happening inside of us. That sets us up to live in community. And the second thing he says in verse 5 is that we should actually help those with things in their eyes. As you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is all in service of loving your brother and sister. That's very helpful for Jesus to personify something in your eye, a belief that you have or an orientation that you have or a desire you have or a longing you have, to see it as something that is inside your eye. That if you leave it there, it will grow infected. It will actually lead to blindness. It's obscuring how you see the world around you. So, so rather than just say, well, hey, if that's your opinion, you can hold on to it, Jesus personifies it and says, it's like there's something in someone's eye. Like the loving thing is to actually move towards them. And he says, so that you can take the speck out of their eye. you got to deal with your own log first so you're in this gracious position, freshly applying the good news of the gospel so you can move towards them and actually help them. So that's the first thing. Gracious understanding of your own sinfulness. And then love speaks and moves towards the brokenness of our brothers and sisters. And then we get into this third thing we want to hold together of distancing ourselves from dangerous people, realizing there are people that are dangerous. So Jesus, as he's got us in this spot, right, all he's been saying is grace and mercy and move towards him and start with your own heart and be in a space where you see your own need. And if that's all you ever hear, it can get you in a spot where you lose some discernment about the brokenness of those around you. So Jesus in his wisdom then puts this like boundary or this barrier up to say, hey, but before we go any farther, realize this, there are people who function like pigs and dogs, who when you try to move towards them from a gracious heart, they will weaponize that and they will seek to devour you. So we're holding three things together. A gracious understanding of our own brokenness and sinfulness, a desire to love our neighbors and come towards them and help them with their own brokenness, and also realizing there are people that are dangerous and abusive that we shouldn't get too close to in such a way that they actually can turn and trap. Okay, like this and lots of different scholars looking at the Sermon on the Mount they come up with lots of different conclusions on what the heck this actually means so I'll put my cards on the table thinking that it's one long sermon it only makes sense to me that this is a boundary to what he's just said it feels like a corrective or it feels like a barrier or it feels like hey this will be the stop point it it is it, it, like um essentially tied to verses one to five but there are people who see the Sermon on the Mount as like just a collection of random wisdom sayings it's all these pearls on a string. And so you have now take this as a verse all by itself and go, what do I do with this one verse? How do I apply this? And I think it's way harder to apply out of context. So some have said it applies to communion and not giving communion to unbelievers, which is true, but I don't think that's the point of this text. And so some have said, and this is actually a majority view, some have said that, that dogs and pigs normally are um, representations of Gentiles in the ancient world and things that are pearls and things that have, have sacredness to them, that's like the gospel. And so it's a caution not to share the gospel for too long with, with Gentiles or unbelievers. And what's interesting is you'll find a passage later on in Matthew where Jesus will actually say, hey, when you're in a space and someone rejects you, 
you don't have to stay there forever. You can shake the dust off your feet and you can move on. So that's a true statement that somebody makes, but I don't think that's the point of this particular verse. I think it simply is this recognition that, hey, there are people that regardless of your graciousness and your ability to look at your own heart, they will seek to actually devour and harm you. I I think that's what the text implies for us, and it's something that actually has been lived out in your life, right? Jesus is incredibly practical to say, hey, there are abusive people who will weaponize your vulnerability and who will, who will say things about you and to you that would actually have your head spinning and make you really confused and make you think that their dysfunction is somehow your fault. It happens all the time. And so Jesus is, as a truth teller, putting this thing in front of us. So it's just one verse, but let's just like unpack it for just a moment, right? Even these imageries of dogs and pigs. So we should stop and, and like, I don't know what you think of when you think about dogs and pigs. So in my neighborhood, I walk a lot with with our little dog, and Winnie's becoming more and more of a sermon illustration. I want to own that. We'll have a season where we put a kibosh on Winnie illustrations. She's my little terrier. She's about 13 pounds. Super cute. She's my praying buddy as we go and walk together. But as we walk the neighborhood, we encounter lots of other dogs, some some big dogs, some small dogs, lots of different species of dogs. And there's this set of dogs, and I don't know the lady's heart or her life or what it's like, but she has these cute little dogs that when you get within about 20 feet some kind of switch throws in these little dogs, and they become ravenous. They will bite each other. They'll bite her. They bark and go crazy. I mean, these cute little, like, put them in your pocket kind of dogs just turn into monsters when you get about 20 feet, right? So when I see them, I'm like, oh, man, we are on this side of the road, Winnie. We're going way over here. We don't know any part of this, like, mongrel horde of these two little bitty-bitty pocket dogs, but they just change radically, right? So maybe you go, all right, I don't like dogs because I know those pocket dogs who have that. But maybe you think about a golden retriever or a labradoodle. You think about these nice, big, fluffy dogs. In the ancient world, dogs were really scary. Nobody, like, had pet dogs. These were, like, scavengers. They're diseased. They're dangerous. They're in dangerous places. They're where you can find, like, bones and carcasses and trash. That's where you would encounter dogs. So this is not like a put it in your pocket and get it groomed and paint its toenails kind of dog. This is like a scary dog. And then I don't know what you think about when you think about pigs. So, so maybe you go like Charlotte's Web, and it's just like talking pig has a life dream. But these pigs are unclean, and they're actually really dangerous as well. So you could enter in like what's going on like down in Texas and stuff where like there, people are just open hunting from helicopters, hogs, because they're like terrifying like farmers' fields. It's those kinds of like painful, aggressive kinds of pigs. So when I was in high school, one of my buddies had a pet pig, and he thought it was like a little pot-bellied pig that would stay this size, but he got lied to, and it turned into this huge pig that would sometimes escape from his home. He lived inside the dude's house in his bedroom. His little den was the guy's closet, and he kept trying to say, oh, it's, they're smarter than dogs. They're amazing. He knows all kinds of tricks. He's so smart. And you're like, dude, that is a giant pig pooping in your house, terrorizing the neighborhood. This is terrifying. So that's my one experience with pigs. And then I thought about like the animals that like at a petting zoo. All right, so here's the idea. The dogs and pigs, when you try to feed them, they turn and devour you, Jesus says. And, and it says when you try to give pearls to them, they actually trample them. Most scholars would say it's because a pig can't eat a pearl. So they get ticked and they want to eat whatever they can. And they can't eat the pearls, but they can eat you, so they'll turn and devour you. Again, this is not Charlotte's Web. This is like packs of wild animals. So, so kids, have you ever been to Deanna Rose Farms? 
You know that section where you can take like a little bottle and go feed the goats? Right. Do you remember when you were like two and three years old and that goat is like eye to eye with you? Hey, moms and dads, can you imagine the scale of that? Like if that goat was your size and looking you in the eye, you would be terrified too. And I'd be like, go in there, man, have fun, get in there. But like it is a terrifying deal for kids, right? And almost every time what happens is a little bitty kid will get in there like with two bottles, smiling. The goats rush the child knock the child down, child now crying, bottles everywhere, and all these goats are kind of around, right? Adrian tells a story of being a kid and going to like one of these like drive-through zoos that had a petting zoo at the end of it and having this huge tub of grain, getting into the petting zoo where she's going to feed the goats, this goat ramming her, knocking her down, spilling that food on top of her, and all these goats like eating both the grain and her shirt and her, and her body. Right, so in that space, like that's the imagery going on. It's not Charlotte's Web, and it's not Painted Toenails Dogs. This is like scary. These are people that are harmful, and they may have a good side occasionally, but when you cross a line, they snap. You could use words like narcissist, or you could use words like abusive or controlling. I want to be really careful not to label or diagnose, but that theme that's running around our culture, what you see is there are people who actually can consume and weaponize. That's what Jesus is talking about. And it doesn't matter how humble you are or how much you lead with vulnerability and deal with your own brokenness first, they will turn and devour you. So Jesus is saying, hey, you should distance yourself from them. Don't don't give to dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. And I think you could surely apply this to people that are belligerent and angry and resistant to the gospel. You don't have to stay in those spaces. But the good news of the gospel actually penetrates into those spots. And we see people like the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, who imprisoned and murdered Christians. And I often wonder, like, how many Christians witnessed to Saul before he's on the road to Damascus? How many times did he hear the gospel as someone is being imprisoned than before he actually the pennies dropped and he became a follower of the Messiah. So I don't think we want to limit it to saying don't do evangelism, but there, there would be an application there. But the thing that's precious here would be like your vulnerability. And it's broad and you can apply it to lots of things, but in this context it would be they will turn and use your humility against you. And how do you know it's a dog or a pig? They have no interest in the speck in their own eye. Every time you engage relationally with them, all they want to talk about is the log in your eye. And so you lead with confession and say, hey, in this moment, man, I was jealous or I was hasty or I was anxious. And they say, I'm glad you recognize that. Good for you. You're growing. You're maturing. And you want to go, no, no, actually, there's another part of this where we can deal with your speck as well because it's a relationship and we actually hurt each other. And a dog or a pig would have no interest in stepping towards their own brokenness. They, They can't actually tolerate vulnerability. All they want to do is consume and then use your vulnerability against you. In a community, then, it's a call to wisdom. It's a call to discipline. It's a call to boundaries. And I think it's actually a call to hope as well. Because again, what we see is dogs actually get healed and changed, and pigs actually are transformed in the kingdom of God. But the call here is that you may not be the one to do it. So, so you stop and say, all right, how do I actually think about this? Let me just go to one special with Jesus. We see Jesus embody this, not just teach it. So think about the woman who's caught in adultery. Everyone's around her, and they're going to stone her. And Jesus steps into that moment. 
takes command of the crowd in that space, actually then says, hey, anybody who's without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. If you don't have any logs in your eye, go ahead. You're righteous enough. And everyone, of course, can't engage that. So the woman then actually, as the crowd dissipates, is left there with Jesus. And he says, woman, where are those who condemn you? And she says, they're gone. And then he says, neither then do I condemn you. Right? And she's acted in ways that were really unhealthy, really un- unsafe, ways that were really out of bounds. And he says, I don't, I don't condemn you. There's grace for you. And then he says, but go and sin no more. Right? There's this desire to actually see transformation and change. There's a vulnerability and a graciousness that leads towards transformation and change. So Jesus is teeing that up for us. So it's just one verse. And so what I want to do now is I got to go outside this one verse to see what else does the scripture say about telling the truth without being torn apart? Like how else would we encounter this kind of command in the scriptures just to give us like a little bit more clarity? And, and one place would be Proverbs chapter 9. So I'm going to actually move to lots of verses. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, go ahead and grab one. That pewback Bible there in front is a great one for you to have if you don't have a Bible. I'll call out page numbers as we get there, and I'll actually flip myself uh, to give us a little time to get there. So we're going to go to Proverbs chapter 9. Here's what I'm going to do. I want to just walk through a couple of different passages to give us a perspective on what do we do. And I actually want to use this metaphor of different species of dogs. I want to talk about fools and false teachers and fighters as different kinds of dogs that we might encounter that we might want to deal with differently. But, but here's the way Jesus kind of teaches this, uh, or God, God teaches us somewhere else in the Scriptures. This is Proverbs chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. He says this, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abused, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Don't reprove a scoffer or he will hate you, and reprove a wise man and he will actually love you. Give instruction to wise men, and they will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. So there's this same message of teaching and rebuke that hits the heart of a wicked person that actually then moves towards injuring you. But if it hits the heart of a wise person, they actually begin to thank you, and they become wiser still. So as you think about this text, actually examine your own heart and go, what happens to you when somebody brings a rebuke or a correction? When someone says, hey, this didn't go the way it was supposed to go, do you turn that and flip that on them? Or do you actually receive that as a grace and a mercy and a kindness and examine your own heart? It's the same kind of teaching that Jesus is saying in this one little verse. So that's Proverbs chapter 9. We see Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Just a couple of pages to flip back to where we were. This is Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. Verse 16, and it's actually a fascinating text because he's telling them that there will be people that will harm you. You're going to be in spaces where people push against you. He promises at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, there'll be people that will actually persecute you in my name's sake, which is a strange way to start his sermon, but he just owns from the very beginning, if you follow me, my kingdom is in conflict with the kingdom of this world, people will hate you. So that's the text that he is engaging with. But the first thing he says is, behold, I'm sending you out like sheep amidst wolves. Dogs, dangerous dogs. So be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. All kinds of animal imagery here. You've got these wolves that I'm sending you out. I'm sending you out like a sheep. And so you want to be discerning and wise while you hold on to this innocence. 
engaging your own heart, your own brokenness, the log in your own eye, while you with discernment say, eh, this person may not be safe. Right? To call somebody snake-like isn't judgmental as long as you're being honest about your own brokenness. It actually is a way to begin to protect you. So he's saying you engage dangerous people differently because of who they are. All right, so, so if that's some background or some framework, and you see Jesus all the time dealing with people differently, right? Think about different species of dogs. So like with King Herod, who killed John the Baptist because he wanted to please his illegitimate wife and his, her dancing daughter. In that space, what you see is when Jesus is on trial before Herod, he doesn't speak. But Pilate seems open, and so he will interact with him there. You see Jesus deal with a woman at the well very different than she, he does with Nicodemus. You see Jesus kind of custom who he is, not who he is, how he deals with people based on who they are and, and where they are. Right? It's an invitation for us to be discerning. Because there are people, if you're taking notes, that are, are fools. They're not evil necessarily, they're just foolish. And so maybe write this down. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says that as a pig... Uh, returns to the mud, and as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. There are people that are just kind of stuck, and they keep cycling. They keep doing the same thing. They're, they're, they're foolish in a way that actually uh, hurts, not necessarily evil. The anxiety and their patterns and their background is a space where actually they feel really, really stuck. They keep going back to the same thing over and over again. And so you deal with a fool with wisdom. And there are times that you correct and times that you don't. So go back to Proverbs. This is Proverbs 26, 4 through 5. Got a little Bible sword drill going on here. Proverbs 26, verses 4 through 5. It's on page 547 if you're in that pew Bible. Listen to this. This is fascinating. These are two verses right next to each other. And what he's saying is you got to have wisdom when you engage with the fool. He says this in verse 4 of Proverbs 26 on page 547. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. So don't answer a fool according to his folly. Don't engage that foolish conversation. Then he says the next verse, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And you're like, oh, see, that's why I don't believe the Bible. There's contradictions. Or is it wisdom to say there's moments where what's most loving for a person is to expose their folly, and there's times when you actually just want to walk away. But there are different kinds of dogs different kinds of species and one of them is a fool and with a fool what's required is wisdom and patience because they're stuck and they keep returning to things over and over and over again that don't give them life but they don't know another way and so you move towards them with wisdom and patience another kind of dog is a false teacher and and the bible would call them actually wolves so you have dogs returning to vomit as fools and you have ravenous wolves as false Teachers. So, so some of you guys knew a couple weeks ago, uh, Ada and I had coronavirus and we were in quarantine, which is not as like romantic as it sounds to be in quarantine with your wife for like 10 days. It wasn't awesome, but, but we did spend some time together. And in that space, I was in this spot as I was praying for you and praying for our church. I said, man, I'm just going to read like everything I can about what it means to be a pastor in the church to make sure I'm moving towards like what's most important for us. If I got these 10 days, I uh, might as well actually engage in that kind of conversation to make sure, even as we come up on the one-year mark of me being here, here we aim the right direction. And I was blown away by how many times there's instructions to pastors to guard against false teaching. That they're going to sneak into the church and they're going to deceive and they're going to harm. You see it in Matthew 7 and just another couple of passages. He's going to say, beware of false prophets who, who come to you like sheep's clothing, but they're actually ravenous wolves. 
And in Acts 20, verses 28 through 30, you see the same thing. And Philippians 3 says, beware of the dogs, these religious people. They're going to put more law on folks. There are people that they teach false doctrine. And to them, it's not this wisdom and trying to engage it. It's actually resistance and rebuke. You, you rebuke a false teacher. You expose a false teacher. You actually engage with wolves in ways that, that take off the sheep's clothing and see them for who they really are because the well-sounding ideas of charity and grace and kindness and patience that actually erode your confidence in God's word are dangerous. They're dangerous in a community, right? And so to hand to those people what is precious, they would actually turn and devour you, if not in the moment, then over a long period of time. And with false teachers, we resist and we rebuke. And there's a third, which are fighters. You have fools that you show wisdom to, false teachers that you resist and rebuke. And then there are people that just want to fight. They just, they're not trying to learn. They're not trying to engage. They ask questions to actually prove that you're wrong. They're not to explore. So Titus 3 would say that you, you warn a contentious person once and then twice and then have nothing else to do with them. And the idea of that is actually say, I'm going to step away from you because you're so unsafe. As I step away from you, it exposes your lack of safety so that you can actually be healed. Two examples. Luke 15 with the prodigal son, who's just off the rails, man. And he goes to wild countries and does all kinds of wild things. And the father just lets him go. He has to hit the bottom so that he can actually see his brokenness and sin and repent. That's Luke 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we get this really fascinating story of, of a man who actually is sleeping with his stepmom. And Paul says it's bizarre because you're not only tolerating it, you're celebrating as if it's a sign of grace. You're such a gracious community. Look, you allow everybody to come. you got this guy who's having sex with his stepmom, and you're calling that grace and kindness. This is crazy. He says even unbelievers know this is out of bounds. What are you doing? Your desire or your opportunity or what you must do is actually cut this person off remove them from the community because when you keep them in the community they think they're fine if you let dogs and pigs just roam the halls they think they belong there so to stop and say hey the way that you're behaving is not in keeping with somebody who's filled with the spirit of god it's a call towards church discipline but the end of that passage though he says not just like to dismiss them he says do it so that they might actually be saved so this is first corinthians chapter five after this explanation he says to hand them over and you deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So it's a gracious thing to engage with people that just want to fight and say, no, man, this is not about like a doctrine. This is not about ideas. You are a dangerous person. I'm pulling away from you in ways that actually expose your danger and your abuse. And in that space, what I'm hoping happens in the void is you can see that you got stuff in your eye. You can see there's stuff about you that actually God wants to heal and change. And you could offer, hey, he's healed and changed me. And when you're ready to actually engage that, you want to engage that in a way that actually is safe. But I'll tell you my story. You actually then want to step back and remove yourself from those who simply want to fight. Time is short, but if you write down 2 Peter chapter 2, 11 to 22, and Jude 8 to 30 or to 23, 2 Peter 2, 11 to 22, and Jude 8 to 23. There's only one chapter in Jude as well as no verse. Hey, those are actually in our Bible reading plan this week, which is really fun. And what you see there is this description of dangerous people described as wild animals. And so you just step back. And the reason why you step back is what this passage says in 1 Corinthians, so that their brokenness and sinfulness and their danger might be exposed so they can actually then get help. 
So fools you engage with wisdom, false teachers you resist and expose, people that just want to fight, you just step back. Don't give them what's holy. Don't, don't keep throwing your pearls out. Don't, don't use your vulnerability in ways that's going to get thrown back on you. You step away from them, and the hope is that in the void, God will work in their hearts. Because maybe they want to actually blame you, or they want to fight with you, thinking if they can defeat you in some sort of argument, then they've defeated God, which is foolishness. You step away and let them actually deal with the Almighty, not with you. You step away from those people in ways that actually keep yourself safe and expose, but it's motivated by a desire that they would actually come around and see their need for God's grace, that your potential codependence or staying too close might actually then cloud and over, uh, overshadow where they couldn't see their own need is the idea and the teaching there. So fools, false teachers, fighters. And hey, and maybe this whole time you've been thinking about family. It's not those people out there it's people I'm related to that share my blood. It's my kids. It's my grandkids. It's my spouse. It's my parents. And there's people that have walked away from the faith or they, they fight with what I think is what's most holy. They, they resist the teachings of the scriptures. So let me just say this, man, that is a really hard place to be. And we as a community understand that there are lots of stories in our community of people that have walked with their family and are still praying for their conversion, for their repentance, for their healing, for their return. We're the kind of community that understands that family is really hard. I can't address your specific instant from here, from behind this pulpit, but man, I would love to draw close to you. I would love to listen. I would love to pray with you. I would love to know how to pray with you for decades down the road because there are family people that fit in this category that I think are maybe the most painful. So let's be the kind of community that actually welcomes the stories that are hard and stands with people in those spaces, applying the scriptures and the wisdom of God, which is why we need community. Because you can't see it clearly. You don't know if this is actually a fool or a false teacher or a fighter. Sometimes it gets all tangled up and confused. And so walking with other people actually is a way that you engage with wisdom. And actually then seeing actually ways where you can serve, keeping yourself distant, and, and praying are ways that you respond as well. So Jude 20 to 23, at the end of this warning passage, he says that we should simply pray. And you go like, yeah, that's what you always say. No, no, it's the most powerful thing that we can do because you can't change somebody from a dog to a pig uh, into somebody who actually is converted. You can't take a pig's heart and make it alive to the things of God. You can't take a dog's heart and turn it alive to the things of God. But God himself can do that. He, he's the one who actually heals and redeems and rescues. He's the one who takes sinners and enemies and he reconciles them to himself. And so our opportunity, even as we step away from people, is to pray aggressively, pray consistently, pray hopefully, pray in ways that actually ask God and beg of him to move in their world. You break the cycle of the dysfunction as you step away from the relationship, but you don't leave them or abandon them. You actually hand them over to the hands of God in ways that he's able to actually do what you can't do, and you move towards him. So, so all things in this, man, there's a ton. But can we be the kind of people that pray? Can we even, the way Jesus says in this passage, like serve those who are enemies, but with wisdom give some distance so that God can actually work? And then what we want to do is seek help from our community because things do get really tangled up and they get confusing. So, so pray, keep distance, serve people, and then seek community would be some ways to actually apply this text. And again, the whole goal there is realizing that God's the one who changes hearts. 
which is a great place to stop this sermon and just turn towards communion to say Jesus is the one who not just is able to, he actually accomplished what made it possible for them to move from being God's enemies to having their hearts renewed and changed. Jesus actually moved towards dogs and pigs, and you know that because you were one of them. Apart from Christ, all of us fall into that category. And you might call yourself a different kind of species. Maybe you weren't the aggressive kind, but your heart was distant from God. And it's only because of what Christ has done on the cross that you've been reconciled and redeemed. That makes you honest, it makes you hopeful, and it makes you move towards people with grace and mercy. And so we'll take communion then as a reminder of how God actually changes people, how he redeems and heals. And I would love it if you're a follower of Jesus, as you taste the cracker and as you taste the juice, remembering the broken body and shed blood of Christ, would you pray for the person in your life that's been on your mind the entire time? Ask God to move towards them with his resurrection power and to begin to heal and save. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would invite you to trust him. Communion won't save you, so don't take communion, but, but I invite you to take Jesus, to trust him. In the spaces where you feel broken and you feel disoriented and you see around you a body count of people pulling away, maybe just maybe God's actually after your heart and you're in the room or you're listening because you're in a space where you need to hear the good news that no matter what you've done, God loves you. He wants to heal and redeem and rescue and save you. If that's where you are, you're at church, Jesus, I'll be sitting right over here uh, at the service. You're welcome to talk to me during communion or after the service or any one of our pastors, man. We would love to engage with you of how you can actually trust Jesus the things that are broken inside your heart, and be healed and redeemed. Let me pray for us now. We'll take communion. There are cups here in the front and in the back as well. And after that, we'll sing, and then we'll go. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for your word that has these um, kind of full-orbed explanations of life. It actually helps me trust you that you understand the difficulties of this life. Thanks for this hard word that puts boundaries in place in our relationships. And thanks that it's a hopeful word that you want to expose brokenness so that you can actually heal it. Would you give us confidence that what you did on the cross is enough for us and for those that we love? Come now and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.